Welcome to the podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. Good morning, Redeemer Christian Church, and Merry Christmas. My name is David Ritchie. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we're honored that you're here with us on this Christmas Eve to just worship at the the truth revealed by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Today, our scripture reading comes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We're in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to begin our reading in verse 1 and continue that reading through verse 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, who makes us glad with a yearly remembrance of the birth of your Son, your only Son, Jesus Christ. Grant that as we joyfully receive him to be our Redeemer, so we may with sure confidence behold him when he comes to be our judge, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Ghost. One God, world without end. Amen. Amen. You can have your seat today. In the forgotten corner of the empire, a young couple from Nazareth seek shelter in a very crowded and ancient city named Bethlehem. Bethlehem that was made famous when a shepherd boy who once lived there was anointed to become king of Israel. The Nazarene couple find that there's no inn that is able to house them in this very crowded city, and so they must instead settle for a place that is more suited for luggage and livestock rather than people. As they begin to settle in, the young woman who is now at the very end of her pregnancy begins to have contractions. Soon she goes into labor, and a baby boy is born into the world. There's no baby bed, there's no crib nearby, so the child is laid within something called a manger, essentially a more pleasant-sounding term for what is nothing more than a feeding trough for animals. From what you know, the birth itself was just like any other birth. 
in the ancient world. However, this child would be like no other child. This event, this birth, would be laden with more significance than anyone could have ever imagined. It would be a birth so pivotal that it would divide human history into two pieces and change the very way we measure time. Later that night, as the wealthy and the powerful and the privileged would lay at rest in their beds, nearby shepherds tend their flock of sheep under the light of the stars and the moon. For those living in ancient Judea at the time, these shepherds were often viewed as lower class. They were poor. They were considered unimpressive by many, and they were considered unclean by all. Yet, it was these shepherds who would behold the darkness of the night suddenly illuminated by a supernatural brightness from heaven. Angels descend. They announce the good news that a king and a savior has been born, a king who's going to bring peace on earth, a king that represents God's grace and God's goodwill toward his people. A vast choir of angelic hosts serenade the awestruck shepherds with hymns of praise to the glory of God who dwells in the highest. Angels will tell these shepherds how to find this king, how to search for him and to seek him out. And the shepherds immediately respond to their summons. They come in from the field and they find this king in the most unlikely of places. True to the words of the angel, the child is wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying within a manger. All who behold this child somehow recognize that there is something profound that has taken place, something mysterious, something sacred. For this reason, whenever the nativity scene is often depicted in Christian art, light does not shine onto the Christ child. It emanates from him. And when the shepherds leave, they leave with hearts filled with wonder and worship. They worship the Lord. They glorify his name. This is the Christmas story. It's a very famous Christmas story as told in the gospel according to Luke chapter 2. But today's scripture reading, if you noticed, came from a different part of the Bible from Isaiah chapter nine. And I wanna argue that it's essentially the exact same story, just told from a different perspective. It's told from a prophetic perspective. You see, Luke tells us how the angels sing of God's glory and how the shepherds respond and marvel. But Isaiah helps us understand the reason why this moment should provoke such worship and such wonder. In other words, Isaiah chapter nine shows us the spiritual reality behind the birth of Jesus Christ. Because the birth of Christ isn't just some birth. It's not just the arrival of a new world leader like Caesar or a conqueror like Alexander. No, this birth represents the fulfillment of God's promises spoken from the very dawn of time. It's the realization of centuries of hope and longing within the people of Israel. So for the rest of this morning, we're gonna take a closer look at the words of Isaiah chapter nine. And we're gonna explore three spiritual realities that are present within this miracle of Christmas. For to us, a child is born. And the first of those spiritual realities that I'd like to explore is number one, that light shines in the darkness. The prophet Isaiah lived in an age of chaos. When he was born, he lived his childhood years during the twilight of the golden ages of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. But as he grew into an adult, the threat 
of an invasion began to rise, particularly from the nation of Assyria. If you're not familiar with the nation of Assyria, Assyria was essentially one of the world's first true empires. And they garnered their power through absolute cruelty and brutality. And so for the people of God, the rise of Assyria felt like the end of the world. And for the northern kingdom of Israel in particular, Assyria's power would portend the end of their kingdom. Because Assyria would be the empire that would invade and conquer the nation of Israel and disperse the Israelites into exile. And the first of Israel's lands to be conquered during this conquest was its northernmost territories. Territories that were the allotted tribal heritage of the Israelite tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. Now this northern region, also known as the region of Galilee, would then become to be known as a place of darkness, a place of death, a land, a part of the promised land nonetheless, that had been defiled by the pagan nations. Centuries after the time of Isaiah, that same darkness would have been felt by all Jews who lived in the ancient Holy Land. Jews who are now under the subjected power of the power of Rome. Rome, after all, represented the greatest of all the empires of men. It was the most powerful power of the kingdoms of men. Rome was considered undefeatable, uncontestable. And Rome would viciously defend their dominance against all who would dare challenge it. Thus, to live in a region like Galilee, whether it would be in the time of Christ or in the time all the way back as far as Isaiah, was to live in a land that represented death, a land that represented darkness. Today, perhaps some of you feel like you live in a world of darkness. Our age is filled with war and rumors of war. The weak are still used and abused by the powerful tragedy and terrible things can befall the innocent while the wicked seem to flourish. And no matter how hard we try to cling to our power and to control our circumstances, things still fall apart. And the center does not hold. On top of that, for many this time of the year, the end of the year, is a particularly difficult and discouraging time that accentuates that feeling of brokenness in the world. Winter can be cold, gray, and lifeless. And here in the northern hemisphere, it is quite literally the darkest time of the year. And so while the holidays might be a time of great joy for many, for others it's a time that amplifies a sense of loss. It amplifies a sense of loneliness. Yet it's also from such darkness that the light of dawn must eventually emerge. And it's only when the death of winter fully comes that every subsequent day grows brighter. And so too in God's providence, it would be from this ancient land of darkness that the hope of light would come. For the young couple that traveled all the way to the town of Bethlehem in Judea, traveled from a city called Nazareth, a city that was located in that dark region of Galilee. Isn't it ironic? The same place that Isaiah said was a place of gloom and anguish, a land of contempt and darkness would be the very place from which the light of the world would dawn into creation. As Isaiah proclaims, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. See, this is the good news of Christmas, that God's light shines in our darkness 
And our darkness cannot overcome God's light. Genesis tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by the very power of his word. He speaks the words, let there be light, and light comes into existence. The Gospel of John will later tell us that that same word of God that brought forth the very light that illumines the galaxies became human flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The creator has come into his own creation. Eternity has entered into time. The infinite has become an infinite. God has become man. Light shines in our darkness. For unto us a child is born. Point number two. The battle is won. As we move through this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah will subtly evoke a famous event from the book of Judges, something that every ancient Israelite and member of the tribe of Judah would have remembered very well. It recounts the day when the ancient hero Gideon, despite his profound weakness, defeated the armies of Midian and delivered the people of God from years of brutal oppression. Isaiah says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is something that the biblical prophets will oftentimes do. They will take a famous story from their ancient history, and they will use that story as an image of their future, an image of hope, an image that stirs the imaginations of the people of God. And the story of Gideon's a great story. The story of the defeat of Midian is a reminder that God oftentimes chooses the weak things of this world to bring down the strong. It's also a story that calls for remembrance the pervading themes of slavery and rescue that are throughout the story of Scripture. For Israel was once a nation of slaves under the power of Egypt. The Jewish people later on in history would be conquered and held under subjugation under a succession of empires, empires like Babylon and Persia and Rome. It would seem that the people of God have this long heritage and history of looking to God in desperation, looking to God for a deliverance that only he can bring. And so too our modern world is still filled with suffering of the oppressed. Many nations on earth at this very moment are filled with war and violence. Many people have been displaced and suffer under the dominion of tyrants and bullies. So at another level, we might even consider this as a spiritual problem as well because the world suffers under a spiritual dominion of sin. In this way, the stories of slavery and exile portray something that is fundamentally true about the human condition. Perhaps you, perhaps someone you love has been chained by something like addiction. Perhaps you've been imprisoned by inescapable thoughts of fear and sorrow maybe even enslaved to self-destructive behavior or delusion. You see, despite all our sorrows, Isaiah proclaims to us good news. For our God is the God of the Exodus. He is the one who delivers his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He is the breaker of burdens. He is the God who has promised to deliver us by sending a Messiah who sets captives free. And this is what Jesus does. He enters into the story of our suffering. He endures the cross, which was the ultimate symbol of enslaving power and oppression. 
But in the irony of all ironies, it would be at the cross where the devil would be defeated, where sin's claim over you would be canceled, where death's dominion would be undone and given an end date. The battle is won, where to us a child is born. Point number three is that God's kingdom has come. A vision of cosmic renewal and redemption is woven throughout Isaiah's long and sprawling prophetic book. He describes redemption in a variety of very rich and imaginative metaphors. Yet in all these images that he uses, each entails some type of a surprising reversal. So, in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah will speak of a day when the wolf will lie down with the lamb. It's an image of predator and prey at peace with one another. But you see, it's more than just a predictive vision of what will happen in animal biology in eternity. It's a prophetic picture of peoples and nations who were once by nature at enmity with one another, somehow reconciled together in the peace of God. So too, Isaiah sees a day when swords will be beaten into plowshares, he says in Isaiah chapter two. The peace of God, in other words, will be so pervasive that instruments once used only to end human life will be repurposed to bear forth harvest and provide nourishment and flourishing for human life. And here too in Isaiah 9, we have yet another one of those images of reversal and restoration. It's another image where instruments of war are redeemed for peace. Because you see, in the ancient world, invading armies of thousands would often march together into a land. They would march on foot into a land that they wanted to conquer. And the arrival of such a force would be announced by this low, rumbling sound in the distance that sounded like a thunderstorm. The marching hordes would strap themselves in protective footweather for the battle. And by the end of the inevitable clash, the clothes of those who would survive would be drenched in the blood of the slain. You see, the prophet envisions a day when the boots that shake the earth and tread upon the weak will fall silent. The warrior's cloaks that were once stained with blood will feed the flames. Isaiah says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, it's such an ancient image that it might be hard for us to understand the magnitude of what he's saying. So I wonder, what would it look like to imagine what Isaiah is able to see in a more modern world? I think one example of a modern reimagining of Isaiah's vision of redemptive reversal can be seen in a 2004 sculpture named The Tree of Life. It's this massive, very heavy, 12-foot-high sculpture that's fashioned from 600,000 surrendered weapons of war, weapons of war that include AK-47s and pistols. These very arms were once used to terrorize and to kill people during the Mozambique Civil War, but when the war ended, the Mozambique Christian Council commissioned four artists to transform them into an image of beauty and artistry that would inspire hope for a people that had been so ravished by years of war. The repurposing of these weapons comes directly from Isaiah. This is a, an image of swords being beaten into plowshares. And the image of this tree of life comes from the book of Revelation, wherein the tree of life will be in the heavenly city bearing forth leaves that are for the healing of the nations. And like Isaiah's words, this tree of life is meant to do something more than just speak novel ideas to our minds. It's meant to appeal to our hearts. Like the best of art, it unveils a truth that we often cannot see. 
It's meant to expand the horizons of our imagination to help us envision a future that seems as though it were impossible. And truth be told, such a future is impossible if all we're relying on is the mere power of men. For this better kingdom to come, we must first have a better king. Our sin-fractured world is a world wherein power is almost always acquired by the brutal, by the cutthroat. History is littered with so-called great men who exalted themselves as gods and puffed themselves up in pride. And so if you were to look at the most powerful people today and mourn over how broken the world is, I would say you're right. It's true. Our world is often ruled by oligarchs who prey on the desperation of the poor and politicians who are laden with corruption yet are never held accountable. You might think, well, is this the best we can do? And the answer is yes. It's the best we've always ever done. Well, you might feel frustrated at the brokenness of this world and the governments of this world. Our situation is not new. It has always been this way. But Isaiah is able to help us see a day when God will send us a king who is better than any king of men. A king who is not only powerful enough to rule, but one who is also worthy to rule. Isaiah declares, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The king that God will send for his people will be called Wonderful Counselor because he is perfect in wisdom. He will be called a mighty God because he is perfect in power. He'll be called an everlasting father because he's also perfect in love. And he will be called the prince of peace because the peace that he will bring forth is not temporary, it's not fleeting, it's perfect and it's forever. So, as we get ready to enter into yet another crazy election cycle, when our collective culture will beckon us to lose our minds over politics, Let us instead recognize that politics at their very best is but a flawed coping mechanism to help us navigate a fallen world. Our hope, our ultimate hope, our Christian hope must be in the only one who will bring healing and wholeness that has no limit. For he is the anointed liberator king of the line of David. His rule and his reign will never end. God's kingdom has come. For to us, a child is born. That's the spiritual wonder of what takes place at the nativity. That's the glory that lays behind Christ's birth. Yet even as we look to the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, the shadow of the cross still looms behind the manger. For indeed, this is a child that will be born, but he's born so that he may die. And coming into this world and enjoining himself to humanity by his incarnation, Christ will be set on a road that will inevitably lead to Calvary and crucifixion. The sovereign son of Isaiah chapter 9 will also be the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. God's kingdom will come. It's not going to be coming by God bringing death on his enemies but by God enduring death for his enemies. His rule and his reign will come not through the power of the sword, but by the far greater, the far more mysterious power of sacrificial love. 
For the child that is born to us will also be wounded for our transgressions. The son that is given will be crushed for our iniquities. And the peace that will come on earth, well, the peace that comes because Christ was chastised. As the prophet says in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his words, we are healed. It's because of the suffering servant's anguish that our souls will be able to find satisfaction because he has borne our iniquities that we will have the hope that we can bear his righteousness. And by his resurrection, we will one day prevail over death for all who believe on him. So on this Christmas Eve, people of God, may you remember and rejoice in the truth that God sees your suffering. He has known your pain and he has sent his only son into this world of brokenness so that one day all brokenness might be healed and restored. For our God is a God who is faithful to his promise. And the son who once came into this broken world will come again to make all things new. For he will shine light into our darkness. He will win the battle. And his kingdom will come. For Christ is born. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us Christ, that you sent your only begotten Son into this world to take upon himself human flesh, to endure the penalty for our sin, to rise again in victory so that one day we might have hope of everlasting life in you. Thank you for that mystery. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Well, right now in this moment, I pray for every person in this room that as we come to an end of the year, we might be bringing and carrying pain into this room. Or for all the things that have burdened us, all the things that have wounded us, I pray that right now your spirit would be able to heal us and restore us. Flood our hearts with the only hope that will not disappoint us. Shine light into our darkness, we pray. So Lord, we dedicate this time of worship to you on this very holy day. And I pray that later on as we light candles in this room as a representation of your gospel going forth into this world and to the nations that you would ignite the light of God in our hearts. That we might behold Christ as we behold him, be made to look more and more like him. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray these things. Amen. hope you enjoyed this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church. Our mission is to declare the gospel with our words and display the gospel with our lives to our neighbors and to the nations. And your financial support makes resources like this possible. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting us and our mission at RedeemerChristianChurch.com backslash give. And thank you for listening.